here in Scary Parish. It's Sunday night, November 25th, 2018. Welcome back to the Eye on College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me, and I will speak to him momentarily. But first, let me tell you about SeatGeek. Buying tickets online, it can be complicated, but it doesn't have to be complicated, not with SeatGeek. And that's because what SeatGeek does is search multiple ticket sites for you. That way you know you're getting the best prices, best seats, best value, always. You just type what you're looking for into the search bar, and then three clicks later, you're buying tickets. It could not be easier. For instance, let's say you wanted to go to an ACC Big Ten Challenge game this week, maybe Tuesday night's Indiana Duke game at Cameron Indoor. You can get tickets via SeatGeek. Just type Duke Blue Devils basketball into the search bar, hit enter. The options will be right in front of you. When I checked this afternoon, seats were as low as $207. That's what it would cost uh, for you to get in the building to see four possible top five picks, 2019 NBA draft. And if you make the purchase, you got the tickets because every purchase made through SeatGeek is fully guaranteed. So next time you need tickets to anything, basketball games, football games, Broadway shows, concerts, whatever, just open that SeatGeek app on your phone and get after it. And don't forget to use the promo code COLLEGEBB. That's promo code COLLEGEBB to get 10 bucks off your first SeatGeek purchase. That's SeatGeek, life's an event, we have tickets. So not a lot has happened in the sport since we last recorded because we last recorded Saturday morning. This is Sunday night. The biggest notable result, I guess, was Villanova beating Florida State to win the Advocare Invitational. Final score, 66-60. Colin Gillespie got 17 points. I watched it. I know you watched it, Norlander. Your thoughts on the reigning national champs? Did they got things figured out now? Parrish, I think I'm 0 for my last nine in predicting Florida State outcomes. When I pick them to lose, they win. When I pick them to win, they lose. It is incredible. Uh, Colin Gillespie played tremendously well. Demir Cosby, Roundtree played well. This goes, this is, touches on a theme that we've talked about on this podcast, and when I talked with Jay Wright about, uh, you know, about a month ago, and him just saying our sophomores are the absolute key to our success this season. If our sophomores can really represent themselves and play consistently as though they were veterans and, you know, borderline seniors, if you will, that's when we're going to have the best chance to replicate a lot of the success we've had over the past three or four years. You got a lot of that in that game. Wasn't a wasn't a great watch, it felt relatively low scoring, as we noted on yesterday's podcast. Uh, no Phil Kofer for Florida State, so it wasn't at, uh, at full strength there. Um, was in decent control for a decent portion of the game, uh, but Colin Gillespie is – is certainly set up to, to come into his own, and he's had a, a great player, too, from Eric Paschal. I expect even more from him as the season goes along, and, uh, and Phil Booth was relatively decent overall, though he took a bad three-pointer near, uh, near the end of the game that uh, kind of kept Florida State into it. So uh, Villanova stops the bleeding, gets an AdvoCare Invitational title, and uh, gets out of Orlando without a loss, which is, which is obviously big for Florida State. Still a good team. Uh, you lose against Villanova. There's no real shame in that. But this was more important. While it would have been great for for Florida State's reputation, there's no doubt about it. It was it was more important for Villanova to uh, to reestablish itself in the greater college basketball hierarchy. Don't think that this just necessarily means Villanova is going to climb back into the polls, the AP poll on Monday. It'll be interesting to see if they do that. But even if they don't, uh, I think that's just a okay. Uh, but the big takeaway here is is Nova dodges taking a third loss before uh, we get into the final week of November, and that was pretty critical. Right. Um, Villanova needed this win way more than Florida State needed this win, just because uh, really for perception purposes, if nothing else. I mean, when you've already got smashed at home by Michigan, uh, lose at home to Furman, and then you take a neutral court loss to a Florida State team missing its leading returning score, and this all happens, you know, before Thanksgiving weekend is even up. Like, that's not the way anybody thought Villanova's season was going to unfold. So they get this um, – 
I, I don't have them. Or I will not have them in Monday morning's updated top 25 and one. I don't mind if somebody else does have them on a top 25 ballot because, you know, the computers do li- still like them, even if the resume is not top 25 words because of the two home losses. But, but whatever, a, a step in the right direction, undeniably. Uh, one note on this game, uh, Javon Quinterly uh, did not play at all. For the second time this season, he, he now has two DNPs in Villanova's past four games, played only three minutes in another one of Villanova's game. And this is obviously not good considering well, he's a five star freshman. So it's not good, but it's also very rare. I mean, let me ask you this. Can you remember another five star prospect like a top 30 dude just getting buried on a bench like this? You know, like, can you remember an example when he was supposed to be the star of a recruiting class? I'm not talking about a situation where, like, five five stars go to Kentucky and one of them doesn't get to play much as a freshman. I mean, when you're a five-star dude, you're the highest-rated dude in your school's recruiting class, and you've caught two DNPs, fully healthy, caught two DNPs before or even close to that, before Thanksgiving weekend is up. This is rare stuff, I think. I mean, Sadiq Bey, by the way, Sadiq Bey is a three-star prospect, class of 2018. He was ranked 138th, according to 24-7 Sports. He's starting for Villanova, played 33 minutes today, and Javon Quinterly can't get off the bench. Do you remember anything like this happening recently? Mm, no, not that doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but a couple things could be going on here. Uh, one, the only thing that's even kind of comparable right now that I think is happening is uh, Naz Little at UNC is just not playing as much as he, frankly, seems like he should be. Uh, now, Kobe White's been awesome. Kobe White's been their best freshman. But Naz Little, this is not – and that's not even anywhere close to what Quinterly's going through. But when you're talking about five-star prospects that aren't on the court perhaps as much as we think, uh, Nasir Little, um, I just thought he'd be seeing more action. He'll probably grow into that. But uh, Roy is, for one reason or another, taking his time with him. With Quinterly – my two responses to what you put on the table here, GPR. One, um, I don't suspect that this is a uh, any sort of de facto punishment, but there, there is all, always the potential for that. Like maybe he's just not getting it, doing something right in practice, and that's a possibility. I'm not saying that's the likelihood, but you just never know. Um, the other thing is Villanova can just afford to do this. It is surprising that Quinterly – who was originally Arizona-bound, it seemed, and then the FBI stuff broke, and Quinterly was attached to that. He committed, and then he's now at Villanova, and his eligibility was all on the up-and-up. Villanova has so much on the roster that it doesn't necessarily need Quinterly, but even through that lens, Parrish, it's surprising given the guy they lost from a year ago who was in charge of running the offense and there's still questions about who's going to be this team's one, who's going to run the point, who's going to run the offense, and you thought Quinterly might be able to step in and at least be, um, <laughs> you know, uh, a relatively uh, a supporting character. You know, it's just not, it just hasn't happened yet. Maybe we look up in six weeks and he's, you know, he's putting up 24 minutes a game, but it hasn't happened. Don't have an answer for it. Um, it will be a bubbling plot line if this continues into mid-December, whether Villanova wins or loses. But it is it is curious because, as you noted, we don't normally get that when the most celebrated member of a given recruiting class winds up, you know, just being a non-factor like this three weeks into the season. And you got a three-star guy starting, and the five-star guy is getting DNPs. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons 
most had Villanova in the preseason top ten. Like the logic was, um, yeah, I mean, you lose four NBA guys, that's tough. But you bring back two starters because Dante came off the bench. So you bring back two starters and you replace Jalen Brunson with a five-star freshman point guard. Like, let's go. And it just has not worked. The only thing I could think of off the top of my head that was similar in recent years, and the reason I remembered it is because I actually wrote about it. I think I was in Orlando. Might have been at the same event, Advocare Invitational. Kansas was there, 2014. And they had a freshman named Kelly Oubre. And he was barely playing. He played four minutes in the first game of the year, seven minutes in game four, five minutes in game five, six minutes in game six. I ended up writing about it because it was so rare. And I remember Bill Self like not being happy with that column because he was like, you know, Kentucky's given that to every five-star kid we're recruiting now, right? That I've already buried a five-star kid on the bench. Um, but Kelly went on to average 21 minutes per game. He got better, but he was never great. But that's the that's the only one that could I, that really popped in my head. I even went and looked up like Scalabissier, and he was playing major minutes early. His minutes actually dropped off as the season progressed at Kentucky in his one year there. But early on, like John was just playing him because he was supposed to be the star of the recruiting class. You just assume that that guy's going to figure it out. Um, but this is this is uh, I don't think unprecedented, but again, very very rare to have a five star player buried on a bench this early uh, in a season when he was the star of a recruiting class. It's just an interesting uh, interesting thing to, to, to follow with that Villanova team. They might not need him to be good, but I do think that they need what he was supposed to be to be great. Otherwise, there's probably a ceiling on, on what they can do, even if they still might be um, the best team in, in, in the Big East. Meantime, um, the game that came on television after Villanova-Florida State was actually the third-place game, and it was uh, Oklahoma State-LSU, and Oklahoma State was picked 12th, I mean 10th in the preseason Big 12 poll. That's dead last. And they won the third-place game, and they just finished 2-1 and one in the Advocare with a 20-point win over Memphis and a 13-point win over LSU. Now, Memphis isn't great. Memphis might not even be good. But I think, you know, uh, Oklahoma State was only favored by – I don't know, four or five, somewhere in there. And they end up winning that by 20. So that's a nice performance. And then they were like four-point underdogs to LSU. And they were winning that game by 20 much of the second half, even more than 20. They end up winning by 13. Um, the lone loss in the event came to Villanova. So that's a good week for Mike Boynton and a testament, I think, to the strength of the Big 12. I watched Oklahoma State play both those games, Memphis and LSU. And if that's the worst team in your league, and I, I don't think it will be, but if that's supposed to be the worst team in your league, you got a pretty good league, and it's why uh, I think you're going to be right about this. You said the Big 12 will be a top two, a top two Ken Palm league for the millionth straight year. I told you I didn't think so. It, it is going to be. It's the number one uh, Ken Palm league in the country right now, and I don't know how many great teams they got, but I also don't know how many bad teams they got because if you're supposed to be, if Oklahoma State's supposed to be one of the bad ones, they didn't they didn't look that bad in Orlando. They've done all right for themselves. Mike Boynton is on his way again early, but 4-2 and two on his way just to uh, perhaps outpacing some expectations. Did drop a roadie against Charlotte in what was uh, Charlotte uh, coach Ron Sanchez's debut as a head coach early in the season. Uh, lost that by two. And then, yes, as you note, lost against Villanova in the advocate. Let me start to be real quick right there because I, don't rem I didn't see it. Um, I don't know why, but I saw people tweeting about it. Apparently, there was a controversial, it's a horrible call. Yeah, yeah, there was something that like it. They, they, the officials turned a W into an L. Was my understanding. 
Yes. Uh, we don't need to, like, slip down that rabbit hole because it's basically, like, more than two weeks old. But uh, Oklahoma State was trying to uh, trying to foul in typical fashion, and then they got hit with, like, a flagrant. Charlotte got more free throws. And, uh, yeah, at, at the very least, the game, you know, should have been going to OT or whatever, and it didn't, and Charlotte got the win. But uh, they should have it, but it's going to get logged as a loss, and they'll be docked for it, and it just is what it is. But, yes, uh, you can easily make the argument, and many OSU fans probably have, uh, be it on Twitter or their forums or whatnot, that this should be a 5-1 and one team, not a 4-2 and two team. Uh, and now upcoming, uh, they've got a game against Minnesota uh, later this week uh, and then a road test against Tulsa. Um, just a side note, it's, it, Boynton isn't afraid to schedule and, and, and schedule on the road. Just kind of like uh, play against teams that – Perhaps other coaches in his position wouldn't do. And like the Tulsa one, like it's a little slippery, maybe a little dangerous, but if you win it, I, I think it's going to be really helpful to the non-conference docket overall. So, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm still thinking Big 12 is going to be a top-two league. Very well could easily be the number one league again. And he's doing well. People will remember that Oklahoma State was probably the – it had – it had the highest highs of any team that was shut out of the tournament. I think USC was the one team that didn't get in last year's dance that should have been in. Oklahoma State was probably my close, close second. And it won uh, not only at Kansas, it won twice against Kansas and then lost the third time when it had to face Bill Self in the Big 12 tournament. So it seems like Boynton is doing a pretty good job um, after getting that job Somewhat unexpectedly, he was on uh, Brad Underwood's staff when they were at Stephen F. Austin, went with them to Oklahoma State, then Underwood goes to Illinois after one year, and then Boynton was the surprise hire. A lot of people didn't think that they would uh, they would have hired from within, and maybe even you know criticism against that from the outside, saying, oh, you're just going to take the, the cheapest candidate there. This is going to be a loss two, three, four years. Uh, Boynton, rest assured, heard that criticism, and he's done well for himself overall. So, yes, if if o- o- if Oklahoma State is a bottom three team in the Big 12, which maybe it winds up being 8, 9, or 10, uh, it still speaks to the overall strength of that league. And we noted what Kansas is on the previous podcast, and there's still a lot to figure out with the Big 12. I don't know who the worst team is. I don't know if it's OSU. I don't know if it's Baylor. Sure as hell doesn't look like Oklahoma right now, who's doing okay without Trey Young. Uh, beat Florida, got a win over Dayton. Uh, didn't look it against Wisconsin, but still, returns are good. That offense is looking okay overall. So, uh, yeah, Big 12 is is off to it again. And, it's and, you know, at this point, I think it's safe to say minimum six teams in the tournament. As high as probably eight, but at least six. Are, uh, that's a guarantee. They'll get at least six in. I think the, uh, the worst team in the league is going to end up being Baylor. Um, they've got a couple of, of questionable losses already. They opened with a loss to Texas Southern, and then they also lost on a neutral to, to Ole Miss down at uh, Northwest Florida State. Um, but Oklahoma State, if not for that bad officiating call at the end of the Charlotte game, they'd be sitting here right now at 5-1 and one with, win, with a win over LSU and a lone loss uh, to Villanova. That's not bad when you uh, were picked last in your league. They were 70th in Ken Palm just a couple of weeks ago. After this win over LSU, they're now um, they're now up to 53. And to your point about Mike getting that job um, somewhat unexpectedly, I, I, I completely agree. Like, I didn't see that one coming. But uh, And I'm usually, as long as we're being honest, not a fan of a school hiring a guy that that who works on their campus who would not be a candidate for the job if he didn't work on the campus you understand what i'm saying like Absolutely, if yes. like it would mike boynton have had any shot at the oklahoma state job if he were an assistant anywhere other than oklahoma state the answer is no right no chance 
And I'm usually not a fan of that. I'm like, hey, if you wouldn't, USC's going through it right now with Clay Helton. LSU's going to end up going through it with Ed Orgeron. Like, would you have hired Clay Helton, USC football, if he didn't work on your campus? No. Then then why did you do it? Would you have even considered Ed Orgeron, LSU, if he didn't work on your campus? Probably not. Then why did you do it? And it is, I think, more often than not, a mistake. I say all that to say, um, I don't think it's a mistake at, at Oklahoma State. It doesn't seem to through a year and six games. Like, Mike's done a, a good job. And, and just watching him on the sideline, he looks uh, he looks the part. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's looking like a good hire. So, again, that's a nice week for Oklahoma State to go 2-1 and one down in Orlando and finish third Advocare Invitational. The ACC Big Ten Challenge gets underway uh, on Monday. Uh, it's a nice game between Nebraska at Clemson. Uh, those are two teams that will both be in the top 25 and one on Monday morning. Um, uh, Nebraska's only loss is a loss to Texas Tech, and that seemed like not great when it happened because it was uh, also double-digit loss, but like Texas Tech looks legit again under Chris Beard. Um, so so maybe it's not that bad. Either way, Nebraska at Clemson is fun, but the great night is, I think, Tuesday night. It's going to be Michigan State at Louisville. That tips at 7.30 Eastern. Then it's Indiana at Duke, 9.30 Eastern. So let's take those in order. Anything interests you in that Michigan State-Louisville game? Um, a lot. Uh, I talked with Chris Mack after they lost to Marquette at Barclays on Friday and I asked him if he had ever had this kind of stretch before when he was at Xavier in terms of non-conference uh, opponents over, say, a two-, three-week stretch here. Because they they're in the middle of something right now, Louisville. I mean, Max got, you know, takes this roster, didn't recruit these guys, uh, and most of the non-conference schedule he inherited. Uh, and then the stuff that he didn't inherit is, is stuff that, that TV assigns, like this kind of game. So uh, Louisville – like had a home game against Vermont that it won. Vermont, in my opinion, has the potential to be like the best 13 seed in this year's NCAA tournament. Then it gets Tennessee and Marquette. Now comes Michigan State. Then they're at Seton Hall. Then they got a homey against Central Arkansas and then play at Indiana on December 8th. So it's just, you know, four or five really good games in a three-week stretch and Max had nothing like this at, at Xavier. Just never had it when I was this up against it. And, of course, he's in the first year. So I'm, I'm interested to see how Louisville responds it should have had that win against Marquette Friday night. Absolutely should have had it. Uh, now, not a super quick turnaround, but, you know, you got a rally to play Michigan State, which is pretty good. I I, I, I think Michigan State will win. Uh, I picked them to win when I did my uh, – I did picks for all these ACC Big Ten games in the court report last week, which is on CBSSports.com. So I'll take them in what will probably be a close game. But, hey, this is a great opportunity for Louisville. And I don't think that this outcome, Parrish, will necessarily swing the Cardinal season one way or the other, like a third straight loss, and then you know they're just going to be spiraling and finding their way for the next three or four months. I don't necessarily believe that, and I don't think that rebounding and winning against Michigan State means that Louisville is going to show it has the goods to make the NCAA tournament. But I'm just intrigued at how – it will respond overall. I know you asked me what else stood out, but I just wanted to kind of address that game directly first and, and get your thoughts and uh, what you think is going to happen there. That's the exact same note I, I had here in my file. Like Louisville could be smack dab in the middle right now of a very reasonable four-game losing streak. Um, it, it, you know, they, they, Tennessee last Wednesday, then Marquette, now Michigan State here, and then, like you said, on the road uh, at Seton Hall. Like has Chris Mack ever had a four-game losing streak? 
I can't imagine. Good question. I don't know. Maybe, maybe early on. Uh, but uh, in fact, you go ahead and fill, and I'm going to research that real quick for you. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. This is just sort of life. Um, and I know that we're not in the ACC schedule yet, but uh, it, it can be life in the ACC. Um, every year, somebody's got a stretch. I think it was Florida State last season where they had a stretch of games where it's just like it's impossible. Like, how how are you supposed to get through this? Like, you're you you're just you're you're thrilled if you win a game. Let me see if I can find what it was. Um, so Florida State last season at one point had Duke and Carolina back to back. Um, this might not have been the team I was thinking of, but there was every year in the ACC, you, you go through a stretch where it's like, Oh my God, my next three, like, how am I going to get one of these? Um, like maybe Duke doesn't go through that or Virginia doesn't go through that. Like the, the schools at the very top, but you know, the, the others, there's always a stretch where you're going to be underdogs two day, two games in a row, three games in a row, four games in a row. And Chris Mack, I think probably for the first time in his coaching career, unless Nordlander tells me differently, um, is going through that right now because of the way that this schedule unfolded. Um, you know, a top five team in Tennessee last Wednesday, then uh, a borderline top 25 team in Marquette, now a top 10 team in Michigan State, and then a road game against a not great, but, but good enough to beat you Seton Hall team. So, um, like I said, they could be right now in the the Louisville could be good, like decent, respectable, and still be about to go on a four game losing streak. Yeah, he's I, he's faced oh. this. He has faced this um, in non conference. He's faced it once, and that was uh, 2012, 2013 with Xavier. They dropped four straight. Uh, since he Wofford, telling you, Wofford never easy. Uh, Tennessee, and then Wake Forest, and then the bad one. It was actually two seasons ago, and I do remember this when I brought up the page because I, I remember thinking that uh, Xavier wasn't going to make the tournament, and I think I wrote a column about it. Dropped six straight, uh, three of which came at home, so that's the worst that he's ever endured, and I don't think it's going to be tough this year. I actually don't think Louisville will hit those lows. I don't think it's going to run into a stretch where it'll lose six straight in what's going to be a good ACC overall, so he has run up against it. Um, but but regardless, uh, real quick um, on the other games that you mentioned, Parrish, um, I, as Nebraska Clemson is just one of the like it doesn't get a lot of attention, but just that can be a really really good game, and both those teams should be in the tournament. Um, so relatively light slate Monday, find the time, and Minnesota still hasn't lost, I don't believe. So just they play at Boston College, and if you're Minnesota, and you're going to get to the tournament, like win that game. We'll see. Indiana Duke, you know, Indiana. <laughs> You just you hope that you can play well, play composed. Hell, it'd be a, it'd be a great story if you somehow pulled off an upset. I'm not expecting that. Almost no one will be expecting that. Um, frankly, I uh, hope Indiana can keep it to single digits uh, overall. You know, Duke's coming off, uh, you know, a high-profile loss, so it'll be interesting to see how they respond to that with almost a week's worth of rest overall. But that is clearly the most high-profile game of Tuesday. And argue, arguably the week, given that those are two blue blood programs there. And you've got Archie Miller returning to that state, of course, played at NC State, um, returning to North Carolina, going up against Duke. And then you mentioned at the top of the podcast when we were doing the SeatGeek read, yeah, you could have four. I don't think Romeo will be a top five pick personally, but yes, conceivably you could have four of the top five picks of the 2019 draft on the same floor on Tuesday night. I happen to think Romeo might slip into that 10 to 13, 14 range overall. Um, 
hey, maybe I eat crow down the road, but I'm not seeing him as a top five guy. But regardless, he could be there. And so uh, whether you want to watch for college reasons, whether you like watching college hoops for as much for college reasons as to see the dudes that are going to become NBA picks, that's clearly a game you're going to want to watch. Um, it's funny you mentioned that because I have Romeo in the mock draft that I did a couple of weeks ago. I had him going fifth. Um, and, and if you look at, I don't know about all mock drafts because I haven't looked at all mock drafts, but I, I think the the reputable ones, and by reputable I mean the ones that get the most attention, um, there there's there has been a, a little bit of a consensus top five of the three Duke players, Nasir Little and Romeo Langford. Um, but I talked to a coach who told me, and this was within the past week, he told me that he's had two different NBA scouts come through his place who have previously gone to Indiana and they were not in love with Romeo Langford. Like, like obviously he's having a fine freshman season, but you know, and again, this is third hand information. This is not what an NBA scout told me. It's what an NBA scout It's what a coach told me. An NBA scout told him um, Two NBA scouts told him. And this, that when they went to Indiana to, to see Indiana practice, just Romeo was just, he was not great in practice. He did not stand out kind of blended in and they did not come out of that thinking he was a top five pick or even a top 10 pick for whatever that's worth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and again, we are November. It's all relative by the way, because sometimes when scouts will talk like that, they'll be discussing those, whether it's talking with a coach or to a media member, they'll be discussing that within the context of, okay, you hear this buzz about this player is going to be a top five player. But honestly, if I'm looking at my board right now, like I just have them like 11, 12, 15. And that means a hell of a big difference when you're, when you're an NBA franchise, like the difference between five and 12 is a fairly big gap overall. And I would argue historically the success rate of going fifth versus going 12th while not consistent every single year. But if you're going fifth, you're going to on average be a, uh, be a better player than, than going 12th. And you're going to have a longer career, all that and all that and all that. So we'll see. Still love Romeo as a player. I'm just, not in on him being top five that isn't that is interesting that you have uh that you have heard that um uh anything else for for tuesday yeah. well one, one one more thing on duke okay uh, seth greenberg made this point the espn analyst of course on television i think he unless i misheard him i think he got it slightly wrong because the point i heard him make on television was that rj barrett has taken um, has R.J. Baird has missed more shots so far this season than Zion Williamson has taken. And it's just like a nice little soundbite, right? Um, I went and looked it up. It's, it, it, again, I'm not, if, I miss, if I misheard Seth, then I apologize. But it, he's close to right anyway. The point's the same. R.J. Barrett's 51 of 125 from the field through six games. That means he's missed 74 shots in six games. Zion has only taken 75 shots in six games. Hmm. RJ's missing 12.3 shots per game. Zion is only taking 12.5 shots per game. So RJ is Duke's leading scorer at 22.8 points per game, but he's got the lowest field goal percentage of any rotation player. He's shooting 40.8% from the field, 31.6% from three, 62.2% from the free throw line. 30.4% of his field goal attempts are three-pointers, and yet he's only shooting 31.6% from three. So he certainly had his moments, um, and he's been spectacular at times. But he's not been a very efficient player so far this season. And there's an argument, I think, to be made where you go, okay, well, we can't have R.J. Barrett missing more shots than Zion Williamson takes. I don't know how we got to figure that out. I'll let Mike Krzyzewski do it since he's like the greatest coach of all time. 
But that, that does seem to be a statistical problem, right? Yeah, and we'll see if it continues. I'm not uh, one to lean in on this just yet. Uh, now, if it, if it continues, it's, it's a legitimate storyline with this team. Um, this is also going to come with the territory with Duke Parish. Like, you know, every game is a traveling Beatles roadshow. Uh, it just is. Um, and we are going to dig in on any possible things that crop up that are worth discussing and writing about. Um, and this will certainly be one of them. Because RJ, he doesn't pound the ball into the ground. Like, he's not that brutal uh, consistently. But he has had some tunnel vision, and he's not the most willing distributor. And I would make the argument that if you got to a point where Barrett, Reddish, Jones goes without saying, and Williamson uh, truly were able to flow within an offense and be willing distributors and and not be seeking their shots. And I'm not claiming that that's what they're doing yet anyway. But if you had a if you had an ideal situation where the ball was moving freely pretty much the entire game, that's when Duke gets borderline unstoppable. When you've got those kinds of talents um, that are that are really clicking, wanting to share it, it will just be hard for almost any team to keep up with that over the course of a 40-minute game. We'll see if they can get there. Frankly, that's part of the fascination with this team. You've got these amazing talents. Can they actually reach that kind of point, or will they not? They're just freshmen. Remember, they didn't play together in high school. and you know, there's there's Those things are way easier said than done. Um, and maybe Barrett winds up being the key to all of this because to me, he is the uh, the purest basketball talent on this team, uh, arguably the purest basketball talent in college hoops right now. And so for him, uh, I think you know finding that balance between knowing he can score, getting the, he, he you know he's like this because he's so good at getting to the hoop in general. And yeah, he can get hot and get really, really, really hot. Um, but knowing his spots, sharing when he needs to share, and realizing that uh, the guy who should probably have his ball in his hands more than anyone. Should be Trey one, Zion two, and then RJ three. And even when that happens, RJ can still be your best player. Right. I, I don't know exactly what the breakdown ought to be, but it, it, I don't think it should be that drastically different between RJ Barrett and uh, Zion Williamson. Again, if you're looking for the little bullet point quote, it is that uh, RJ Barrett has uh, has missed 74 shots in six games, and Zion Williamson has only taken 75 shots in six games uh last thing before we get out of here um tuesday night there's a, a, a another non-league game it will not be in the acc big 10 challenge but it is notable because um it's uh a matchup between two teams that uh, were both in the sweet 16 last season it's a matchup between a, a top 10 team and a program that was in the final four last season it's nevada at loyola chicago now a little of the shine is off of this um, because Loyola Chicago has taken a couple of losses um, uh, already. Um, they, of course, lost um, early to Furman. That was 60-58 at home. And then they also, last Wednesday, um, took a neutral court loss to, to Boston College by 12 points. So they slipped all the way down to 68th um, at Ken Palm. And they're not, to the extent that they were going to have a possibly have an at-large resume, it's, it's already taken a ding. But still... Um, I think what's most interesting about it is it's the first of true, two true road games for Eric Musselman's Wolfpack this week. They're at Loyola Chicago on Tuesday, at USC on Saturday. Now, those wins, if they get them, they won't register like when, you know, Gonzaga beats Duke or um, Kansas beats Tennessee because wins uh, over teams that don't have numbers next to their name don't register the way wins over teams with numbers next to their names do but 
two true road wins over, you know, top 70 teams. Um, that's, uh, I mean, that, that and I know we're, we'd be using the, any, the net as opposed to, to Ken Palm, but if you can go get these, I mean, these are possibly, possibly end up being quadrant one wins. And so mm-hmm. uh, it's a big week for Nevada. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're both, they could possibly wind up as quad one wins. Uh, I think USC will. We'll see about Loyola. Uh, Nevada, and then, by the way, it's got a neutral uh, Friday, December 7th against Arizona State. That's also in L.A. It's part of the – I mentioned this on the last podcast. It's part of the – it's like the triple header Hall of Fame classic kind of deal. So uh, an interesting – run here in fact if you really you know extrapolate further like they play grand canyon just interesting mid-major and then they get south dakota state so uh but the road games up ahead here let's let's focus on these because nevada has done what it's been expected to do um it has not only won all its games it has dominated in all of its games so you're right in that if it was able to win at loyola and win at usc it wouldn't register the same but i will i will tell you this parish and you know maybe this will be on us to make it a thing it will be a thing if they beat loyola by 29 on the road and then fly back west and beat usc by 17 on the road like i'm not saying they're going to do that but if they do then you know we can we can legitimately discuss nevada just as really you know going chin to chin with gonzaga as as the top team out west we'll see if in if they're able to do that for loyola this is this is how you are able to uh, just reestablish some credibility here. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the line in that game will be. I'll guess it'd probably be like Nevada by six on the road, maybe something like that. Maybe yeah, something. But so the point is, Loyola is going to be an underdog in its own place. Um, but it has played well over the past three, four years. I'm not just talking about last season, GP. Uh, it has played well against um, good opponents from power conferences or Nevada-type opponents. Maybe not quite as good as they are this year, but you get the point I'm making. Um, so they know how to win at home. Uh, it's part of why Porter Mosher can't get good teams to go play there, frankly, because he's had a lot of success uh, beating the likes of Creighton and some others there. So we'll see how Nevada fares. Um, but Loyola needs and it, it needs this kind of win because it has to play at UIC, which just from a mid-major standpoint is a solid team. That's going to be a road game for Loyola. And dropping Nevada and UIC, then it's just like you got to win the MVC. No, there's just they're going to have no wiggle room whatsoever. So anyway, it's intriguing. I think Nevada will win. I hope it's a close game. If Nevada goes, I'll take it a step further. You say that we will get to a point where there's an argument, debate over best team in the West. Is it Gonzaga, Nevada? I think you can already reasonably argue that. Mm-hmm. I know we just watched Gonzaga beat Duke, but if you wanted to have that conversation, you can have that conversation right now. I mean, Nevada is fifth at Ken Palm right now. Gonzaga is sixth. Nevada has the number one, uh, uh, has the top, uh, has the most efficient offense. In America is rated number one in offensive efficiency at this moment. Like you said, they're not just undefeated six and zero; they're smashing everybody. And if they go, I don't know about smash, but go handle Loyola Chicago on the road by double digits, then go, uh, you know, do something similar to USC. Not only will people be talking about is Nevada actually the best team uh, from the uh, um, from the West Coast? The argument, like, well, are they going to go undefeated? Because they are going to be favored, barring injury or some like weird turn. They're going to be favored in every game. I know, but uh, pod rule, man. We can't we can't entertain that till we get to January. That's all I'm saying. Like, um, I yeah, no, no, no. I'm not I'm not here to try to spend the next seven minutes on it. I won't even spend <laughs> seven seconds on it. But Kim Palm does give them at least a seventy three percent chance to win every to win every individual game on 
on the on their schedule the rest of this regular season. So um, I'm just saying that they've 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 got to they if they get through this week they're gonna have a shot at it or at least I should say this they'll have a better shot at it uh, than anybody else um, in the country. You want to do trivia time before we leave? Let's do it. Trivia time, Norlander. Okay, we mentioned Ken Palm because it's a podcast and I'm speaking. Why would I not? Mm-hmm. Um, a great reference tool. You can subscribe for, I think it's 20 bucks worth your money. Um, Ken Palm has a player of the year rating. Mm-hmm. Who do you, you think is leading it right now? Uh, we did this. I asked you about these players. Hold on. I asked you about these players like a week or a week and a half ago. And third was Ty Jerome. First was Ethan Happ, so that's just my guess. Ethan Happ was first, but I wonder if there's someone who's taken over him now because you're asking me this. Uh, I don't know. I guess I'll guess Ethan Happ, by the way. Wisconsin hosts NC State in the Big Ten ACC Challenge on Tuesday night. Badgers will probably win that. Anyway, Ethan Happ is my guess. Am I wrong because you were setting me up for something else here? No, you. I forgot we talked about it before. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it is Ethan Happ. Ethan Happ, one. Diedrich Lawson at Kansas, two. Mm. Grant Williams at Tennessee, three. Zion Williamson uh, from Duke, four. And Lamar Stevens from Penn State is fifth. Okay. Sure, bro. Where's Ty Jerome now? Not listed. Wow, Not see, listed. Things change in six, a hurry. Yep. Six is Carson Edwards at Purdue. Seven, DeAndre Hunter at Virginia. Uh, eight, Jarrett Culver, Texas Tech. Nine, Kamar Baldwin, Butler, and 10, the great bubble from Oregon. Mm, okay. Well, there we go. Pretty uh, pretty intriguing. Since we are mentioning all this, I wonder if uh, I wonder if um, Chris Clemens from Campbell, for a little alliteration there, uh, is going to crack that top 10. He had 45. We got to give a shout to this guy. First of all, because he's like, he's only two inches taller than you. He's like 5'7". It's crazy. He had 45 at Georgetown on Saturday. He is now the season's really young. So he's he's the only player uh, in D1 to have two 40-point games at this point. He's averaging 33 and change and he's just a stud. He's going to score 3000 points. He is accelerating his pace. Like we're thinking maybe it would happen end of February, early March. Maybe he gets there by early February. So just keep an eye. It would be great if Campbell made the NCAA tournament. We got to see if they can actually do that, but just uh shouts to that dude. He no one has put more up than 45 against a D1 opponent. Kid on Furman, Jordan Lyons had 52 when he had 15 threes, but that was not against a D1 school. So just uh, that was the big performance individually over the weekend, and I wanted to give him a little bit of a shout before we get out of here. There is um, another category rather than uh, Ken Palm Player of the Year standings. There's game MVP leaders, which I assume just means like you were the most valuable player in a particular game. And uh, Chris Clemens is tied for second with four of those, trailing by one game. Uh, the legend James Bateman from Loyola Marymount. Okay. He is not. Know. He is. I don't listen, know. Hey, it's not, not my computer. It's Ken's computer. He's not the legend, and you can't be tossing this out. Like, you got to reserve it, okay? Minimum th- or maximum three legends. And I think we're at two on this podcast right now. In fact, I might even argue, like, you've got Terry Teagle, you've got Larnell, and these aren't even OG listeners. These are just, you know, people that were around th- three, four years ago. Calvin Nat was right at – I don't know how we <laughs> lost track. That's my guy, Calvin Nat, okay? You know, maybe – Did I add Calvin Nat to the list? Oh, well, he's my guy. Calvin you Nat was – Shout out Calvin Nat then. Right, shout out Calvin Nat. How are you living right now? I think you're in Colorado these days. I don't know. Uh, you're probably never listening to this podcast. But if someone runs into Calvin Nat at the grocery store – 
happens to know his whereabouts, let him know we respect him and he's a legend in our eyes. I don't um, actually refer to Larnell as a, the legend, but people on, t- on Twitter, I've seen multiple people on Twitter refer to Larnell as the legend. But Larnell is not the legend. Terry, Terry Meffin Teagle's the legend. That, okay. Larnell's just Larnell. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, I, you know what? I agree with that. We should, we should have <laughs> damn standards on this podcast, and I'm good with, I'm good with Teagle being the legend. Nat can be something else. I got a, I got a noodle on that. And uh, Larnell, he's just sitting at the table, man. And it's, and I love it all the more because, because uh, his freaking name's Larnell, and he gets a shout on in every freaking podcast now. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M.F. and Teagle. He's the legend. Shouts to Larnell. And remember, please go subscribe to the Iron College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. Let me say this. Like, if you go to, you can check this out. You go to iTunes, and then you start clicking on the podcast, and you go to, like, the amateur or, like, what's it called? I don't know. But, like, um, college sports podcast. (laughs) That's basically what it is. We're ranked number one right now and have been consistently uh, throughout this season. And that's a testament mostly to Norlander and I. But, but it still wouldn't be possible without you guys subscribing and listening. So as much as we appreciate ourselves, we also uh, appreciate you. Not quite as much, but, but similarly. So please, um, if you haven't subscribed yet, uh, go do that because it, it makes a big difference. Rate it favorably. Five stars, nice comments. That's all I've ever asked from you. And uh, if you have already subscribed, uh, sincerely, thank you because it uh, it makes uh, it makes a big difference. It's cool to to click on that and and know that um, of all the people doing podcasts about college sports, um, that this college basketball podcast has, um, however they measure it, it, it just uh, it, it ranks number one. So that's a cool thing. And in all seriousness, um, it is a testament to you guys, and we appreciate you. Um, listening every single time you do it. So uh, keep doing it. And we're going to be back on uh, Wednesday. Till then, take care.